Well, the year was 1776, and the American Continental Congress on July the 4th made the Declaration of Independence official. Actually, it was signed on July the 2nd, um, so technically we should celebrate uh, uh, what we call Independence Day on the 2nd. But it was the moment in which we said we will no longer live under King George. You do realize that that's why we're going to celebrate what we call the 4th of July uh, or Independence Day on this Wednesday. And while the uh, famous American holiday is celebrated in probably some of the most American ways, right? We're going to waste hard-earned dollars on pretty bombs and make them go boom, right? (laughs) We're going to sit outside in the scorching heat and burn ourselves while we eat as much meat as possible off of the grill, We're going to wear red, white, and blue from our hats to our underwear to our sweaty t-shirts. We're going to wave the stars and stripes uh, like we never have before. We're going to stay up late. We're going to laugh a lot, and we're going to make memories. We're going to drive irrational distances to see family members who we only see once or twice a year, and so we can see our favorite firework show, all in the name of freedom. But we understand, I believe at least, most of you in this room understand that that freedom costs something. It cost 25,000 lives in the American Revolution. It cost 116,000 lives in the First World War. It cost over 405,000 lives in the Second World War. And it cost over 600,000, over a half a million lives in the Civil War. Freedom as we know it in America came at a gruesome cost. And for it, I do believe we should be grateful because freedom is, well, freedom's a gift. Freedom in its fundamental definition is, uh, is defined as the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. Freedom is, is powerful. And the freedom we experience in this country is great, but I don't believe it can compare to to the freedom that we can receive in Christ when he is, right, that perfection of the reflection of the law. That's what we spoke about last week. It, it, can, it cannot begin to compare. So today we're going to continue on in our series in the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 4 uh, today, so if you want to go ahead and turn over there, you can. Uh, we're going to be bouncing back and forth through the first seven verses or so. It's on page 944 in the Bibles that are just under the chairs in front of you. Now, Paul has spent these first three chapters challenging the people in this city that have made up this church in Galatia to live free, to see that there is no other gospel. And the gospel is what? It's the good news, right? The good news that we have been, well, we've been set free, that we've been given that gift of freedom. As it's been said over the last several weeks, the gospel is, I am loved and accepted by God, therefore I will live for him. The gospel centers on Jesus Christ, God's son, the one who paid the price, who gave us this this free gift of a personal relationship with God himself. The gospel breaks the chains of slavery that are sin in our life, and it sets us free. But like the church in Galatia, we often We've often made the gospel messy. We try to add to it, which produces legalism, or we try to take advantage of it, which produces hypocrisy. Instead, we need a couple right belief with 
right behavior. And as chapter 3 unpacked last week, we we need to stop trying to, to prove our worth to God. Our worth has already been determined in God's eyes. It's like getting a gift on Christmas morning. And you open up the gift from that that loved one of yours, and as soon as you see it, you say, wow, this is so awesome. Hey, how much do I owe you for it? Can I pay you? Here's some money for my gift. It doesn't make sense, right? It's like working out on a hard uh, day, sweating it out like it's so hot today, and then going inside, taking the shower, and coming back and putting on those, those same clothes. It doesn't make sense to, to, to not fully accept the free gift. You see, the promise has always been life. The problem has always been sin. And the rescuer will always be Christ. You see, the promise was given in advance, right, to Abraham to give life and to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. A promise that Abraham believed. But then the law, right, as we talked about last week, the law is a reflection of God's morality. It's a reflection of his perfection. And we we couldn't live up to it. So, so the law enters into the equation, and the law showed us not our salvation, but it showed us our sinfulness, and so we needed a rescuer. Listen to how Galatians 3, uh, verses 23 um, through 26 says it. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. If you belong to Christ, this is verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now Paul continues that talk of freedom. You know, at first reading of our text this morning, which is verses 1 through 7 in chapter 4, one might easily think, okay, okay, we get the point. Live free. But the truth is, I don't think we do get the point. Like the church, the church in Galatia, they, they surely didn't get the point. I believe it's one of the father of lies, one of Satan's greatest tricks He likes to to twist half-truths and and whole lies. He likes to make us think that, "Ah, you know what, it it takes something more. There's no way that you could be saved. You could be given this this freedom in Christ. He wants us to think that there's no way that faith um, through grace um, or grace through faith is going to, to save us. And so Paul continues on with the challenge to live free. To recognize the simple gospel. I am loved and accepted by God. Therefore, I will live for him. As long as you're under my household, you're going to follow my rules. Maybe you have a a teenage son or daughter that you've used that line on a time or two, right? As long as you're under my household, you're going to follow my rules. You know, as parents, we set rules for a reason, right? As parents, we, we set rules most likely to protect our children, right? Don't touch the stove. Why? Because you're going to burn yourself, right? Don't stick out, stick your finger into the outlet. Why? Because you'll start glowing if you do. Don't stick your finger in the outlet, right? Don't stay up all night. You have a bedtime, son. Why? Because sleep's vital. You need that rest. It's going to help with brain development, and I want you to be smart. (laughs) Don't cross the street without looking both ways. Why, mom or dad? Because the car will win the battle if you decide to play chicken with it. You see, rules are boundaries. 
Rules are, are set for our children not to oppress them, but to impress something on them. Ultimately, rules are there to impress life. And if, if you know how children work, children actually, they desire rules. They, they need rules. They, those boundaries are good for them because, in a sense, the boundaries help to promote the freedom that someday they will have to make their own decisions, to decide, am I going to look both ways? Am I going to put my hand on the hot stove? Uh, those rules help to, to, to grow them into the freedom that they will someday be uh, given. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this is what Paul has in mind. He's thinking about how children are under the rule of their, their parents. And so he begins this section of Scripture saying this. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to, to guardians and trustees until the time is set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. You see, in Paul's day, children had a definitive growing up age. Um, if they had grown up in the Jewish heritage, it was around 13, right? And we know that today, that uh, Jews celebrate right the, the bar mitzvah, is what we, we call it today. Um, and it's this celebration of their, their going from um, boyhood to adulthood. Uh, and and there, there's something that's a, a, a very specific break that happens in that moment. Now, if they were in, uh, in the Greek society, the Greece, well, theirs, their growing up age was 18. And uh, until the age of 18, they would have sat under the rule of their, of their father. Um, and then at 18, they would have went into uh, service to the the. the the army, per se, you could, you could say. And so there they sat for, for two years as cadets um, that served the state. Um, but when they became a cadet, there was this, this ceremonial cutting of their hair. Um, they would cut their hair. They would prepare them for the service to the state. And that was the moment in which they went from childhood to adulthood. If you were in the Roman society, that was between 14 and 17 years of age. There was always a similar ceremony per se. And for them, their, their attire changed. They would have worn some sort of like kilt-like um, uh, object around their waist. And it would have been a certain color. And then it would have changed to a different color to represent their change from childhood to adulthood. It was also said that, uh, that when a, a child grew up and came into this adulthood, that a boy in the Roman society would hand over his ball that he had played with um, as a young child, or the girl would hand over her dolly as a representation, a symbolism, that they were going from childhood to adulthood. There was this really definitive break now today, I don't know how we mark specifically adulthood. Maybe it's marked by uh, going to the license branch. I was in the license branch the other day, and there's mom was there with her daughter, and her daughter's like taking the test, and um, she's signing off on all these paper, and the mom is literally taking pictures the whole time she's taking her test, the whole time she's sitting up in front with the B&V gal. I'm sure the B&V gal's like, Get, stop taking pictures of me, okay? I'm just trying to do my job. Uh, but there's somehow this, this marking. Maybe it's marked um, at 18 years of age when they graduate high school or when they, they head off to college or they join the workforce. The, the, the marker's not as defined in our society. Why is that important? Well, because Paul is saying that as a child, there is some sort of bondage, right? There is someone that is looking over us. There is a rule. But we all understand that at 
a set time the rule comes to an end. That at some point, the kids fly the coop, right? And they grow up, and they become adults themselves, and they are told they can make their, their own decisions. And this is, this is a way, in a way, exactly what has taken place here. The Old Testament represented this, this system that was set under rule, and it says at the, at the set time, God, God sent Jesus to us. And that's the moment in which, in a sense, uh, we went from children to adults. So freedom is a gift. But what is it a gift of? Well, freedom's a gift of redemption. Let's, let's look at verses 4 and 5 of our passage this morning. But when a set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, uh, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. To redeem those under the law. You know, Tom carried his new boat to the edge of the river. Tom was a little boy. He had made this real pretty little boat, and he, he carried it to the, the edge of the river, and he stuck his boat in it, and he hooked a little string to it, and the boat went out, and he just sat on the shore and watched this little boat that he had made kind of float and drift around. Suddenly, a strong uh, current came by, and it started to push the boat farther down the stream, and, and Tom got up, and he tried to, to run towards his boat, but the current kept pushing it farther and farther and farther until it had finally went out of the little boy Tom's eyesight. He went home dejected and sad that he had lost this, this special boat that he had worked on countless days and weeks trying to put together. A few days later, on his way home from school, Tom spotted the boat. It was in one of the local store windows, and when he got closer, sure enough, he could see it. And Tom hurried into the store manager, and he said, Sir, that boat in the window, that's my boat. Sorry, son, the manager said. <laughs> that boat was brought in by somebody else this morning. If you want it, you're going to have to buy it. Tom ran home. He counted every penny he had in his piggy bank, and it was exactly what he needed to buy the boat. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. He said, here's the money for my boat. And he left holding that small toy boat in his arms. And he said, now you're twice mine. First I made you, now I bought you. That's our story, right? That's our story of redemption. God made us, and he created us with life in mind. That's always been his plan. Think about the Garden of Eden. Man, how wonderful that place must have been. Like, now, you think about the best vacation you've ever had or the, the most beautiful location you've ever been to. Maybe it's a tropical paradise. Man, the Garden of Eden would have made that tropical paradise, the thing you have in your mind, probably look, look a little trashy. <laughs> think about a, a crisp fall day. Beautiful blue skies. Uh, think about how the trees are, are changing colors and the beautiful colors that you see. Man, the Garden of Eden would have made that, that look, look like a bleak black and white television. <laughs> the garden was the fullness of God's intent for beauty. It was in the garden that, that Adam and Eve were experiencing this perfect relationship with, with nature and creation, but more importantly with God. But then through sin, Satan, Satan stole away the life that God intended for us. And for 4,000 years, mankind was lost, lost in our brokenness that was shown to us by, well, by the law. But God loved his prized creation. He loved us so much that like the little boy running down the stream after his boat, he went searching for us. He came in pursuit of us. And like the boy, when he found the boat and God came searching for us, he was willing to pay the price to buy us back. 
Listen to how Colossians chapter 1 says it in verses 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were even enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, establish and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. You see, redemption is an action of regaining possession of something in exchange for a payment. It's a, a clearing of the debt. Think about that for a moment. Satan may have stolen away life in the garden. Adam and Eve um, may have knowingly walked into sin, just like we have knowingly walked into sin. In one sin or a million sins, we all need a Savior. And that's exactly what f- the freedom that was, was purchased for us. Redemption doesn't come out of pure force. You cannot will out redemption. You cannot say, I, I'm just, I just want this. You can't steal away redemption. No, redemption costs. Just as freedom cost. And so freedom is a gift of redemption. Or as Ephesians chapter 2 says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. But as well, freedom is a gift of adoption. Listen again to those, those verses that we just looked at, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. It says this, But when the set time had fully come, right, we, had, we were no longer children. God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that they might receive the adoption as sonship. I should have said we are no longer slaves, right? Now we are children. We are sons and daughters of God. There are quite a few family members here uh, in this place, people that partner in the ministry of, of Bethany Christian Church that have been touched by adoption. Can I take a moment and tell you what a wonderful thing you have done? You know, I, I know it's not easy. I know it's not easy to, to fly halfway across the country or halfway across the world. Uh, to, I, know, I know it wasn't easy the moment when you decided you know what, I think this is the pathway for us. We're, we're having tra- trouble having children of our own, or we've had children of our own, and now it's, now it's time we want to we provide life and encouragement to, to a, a son or a daughter that's not biologically ours, but we love them so much. I know it was hard when you, when you officially came to that decision. I know it's, it's hard when you, you wondered, maybe for months, maybe for years, when will this be finalized? When will we have a, a document that says they are ours? When will we know that, that nobody's going to be able to get them back or take them away from us. I know it's hard when you, you wonder, what will they think when they're old enough to understand that I'm not their biological mother or father? Will they still love me? Will they know how much I care for them? You know, my wife and I have been blessed uh, with our daughter Eden um, through adoption. And as we went through that, a friend and a mentor sent us a quote that has stuck with me. He said, I'll look back on this and smile because it was life and I decided to live it. God's going to bless that decision of adoption. Why? Because God is a God of adoption. Anyone that goes through the adoption process, though, knows, well, knows that it takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes patience, and it takes a whole lot of work, and sometimes it takes a whole lot of money, and most of all, it takes a whole lot of love to say, no, they, they are, they're worth it. You know, the promise has always been life. The problem has always been sin. And the rescuer will always be Christ. 
But we're not just rescued from our sin. We aren't just said, you were in slavery to sin, now I have bought you back at a price, good luck, see you later. That's not what happens. No, we are bought at a price, and then we are told, now I'm adopting you into the family. Not only are you no longer a slave, but now you are a, a child of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 says it like this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. I believe being a son or a daughter of God should change who we are. We're all sons and daughters to someone, right? I mean, we all have parents, but those parents aren't perfect. Yet still, there's often this inherent desire to, to please our parents, to make them proud of us. And God is a, a perfect parent who's loved us with a, a perfect love. Shouldn't we want to return that love to him? I mean, shouldn't we want to, to honor him with our decisions? You see, when we recognize uh, that uh, our adoption is son or daughter to the God most high, then we understand something. Our motivation changes in how we live for God, right? When you live in religion, you live out of obligation, right? Because religion says, I go to church because I think my attendance record will someday, uh, will, will someday be looked at by God and he'll say, okay, you're good enough. You went to church every Sunday morning. You only missed a couple each, each year for vacation, right? Religion says, I give to the poor because I think someday God's going to say, how much money did you give to the poor? Religion says, I watch what I do because I think if I'm pretty good, my good will have to outweigh my bad, and God will say, well, your good outweighed your bad, so I'm going to let you in. Religion is motivated out of obligation. But we're breaking up with the religion, right? We're breaking up with religion, and we're starting a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when you're in a relationship, you understand, well, you understand that you're a son or daughter of God. And when you're a son or daughter of God, your motivation isn't obligation. Instead, your motivation is, is why well, I'm loved by God, and I want to return that love to him. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 talk about how we are chosen. It says this, but you are chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're all a holy nation, God's special possessions, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Being God's children is not oppressing. Like, you shouldn't feel weighed down and burdensome. No, freedom is a gift of adoption, and our adoption should, well, it should be empowering. It should empower us to live life fear, fearlessly. <laughs> we shouldn't live in fear. It should, it should empower us to know that, you know what, we can make mistakes, and we can fail, but that doesn't change our status with God. We can be secure in our status. Instead, a relationship as a son or daughter says, I go to church because I love the church, because Christ loved the church. Like I, I enjoy the time with other believers. I, I like being connected with them. I, I like seeing their faces on a Sunday morning. I like getting connected in small groups because well, they encouraged me and they challenged me and they helped me to walk, uh, walk in a, a more whole and right relationship with God. A relationship as a son or daughter says, I give to those who are in need because my, my God, my Father, the one who has brought me into sonship or made me a daughter of his, well, he, he loved me first, and I want to love others, and, and I'm going I'm to give out because of that. A relationship as a son or daughter says, I love God, my Father, because he, well, he first loved me. 
As 1 John chapter 3 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what you are. You're not a burden to God. You are not a burden to God. You're not a problem to God. You are not a hindrance to God. You are loved by God. And you are called son and daughter. And that is freeing. So live free. But finally, we learn in this passage this. That freedom is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what it says in verse 6 of our passage this morning. It says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son, that's Jesus, right, into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You know, my father's a great man. My earthly father. He's not perfect. He's hardworking. He loves the Lord. But as a kid, I always remember something about my dad. I always remembered his hands. There was something about his hands. As a kid, they might have put his arm around me or patted me on the back or taught me how to hold the baseball bat. But they were always rough and calloused. They were usually full of, of grime and dirt. My dad's a blue-collar worker. And uh, he, he was just always a, a hard-working man. As I grew up and, and got older, I always appreciated that I could see those hard-working hands and recognize that they could be full of love and compassion, too. And I saw that in how he treated my, my mom or how he cares for my grandparents. But now, as I've gotten older... I find that, that some days I just see myself looking down at my hands because it seems as if, <laughs> seems as if the, the same hands have been implanted onto me. Um, I guess that's what happens when you have the same genes, right? Your hands kind of naturally begin to, to look the same as your father's as you grow older and certain qualities and traits begin to come out. Now, some of you men in here are like, dude, he's got the softest hands. I've shook his hands before, <laughs> all right? Yeah, lots of lotion, all right? Uh, Okay, I might not have as manly of hands as my father did, uh, but just the way they look reminds me of who my, my dad was, and they remind me of some of those, those great qualities. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. But the Holy Spirit is that promise that Christ gave to us himself. It says it like this in John 14, verses 26. It says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, this is Jesus talking here, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Or it's the promise that's given to us when we come to know the Lord. Peter said this to the church on the very first day that the church was incepted. He said this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like these hands that remind me of my earthly father, but so much more. You see, our earthly parents can impress stuff upon us, but, but God actually lives within us. And the Holy Spirit indwells within us, and it becomes this eternal and internal compass to us. According to God's word, here are a few promises you can know because of the Holy Spirit's working in your life. If you're in Christ, you can know you have these things. The Holy Spirit is a power supply. It says it in Acts 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Maybe that's power to stand firm. Maybe that's power to, to quit a sinful habit. Maybe that's power to have the right words when somebody questions you about your faith. You know, it says that the Holy Spirit will be our mouthpiece. 
Uh, in a sense, that, that means that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us when we pray to God. The Holy Spirit will give us the right words when somebody asks why we believe what we believe. Now, we should study out God's Word so that the Holy Spirit can recall those things to our mind. The Holy Spirit will act as a hard drive, right? The hard drive shares all the, or it holds on to all the data in our computer, and the Holy Spirit does that. He said it, remember we looked at John 14, verse 26, it says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in his name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. That was Jesus speaking. So it says, it'll remind you, it'll recall to your memory. The Holy Spirit is that hard drive in our life. The Holy Spirit becomes a weapon for us. It gives us the power to defeat our sinful habits and to remind us to live free. As well, though, the Holy Spirit becomes our smile. Like, I know what it's like. Some of you in this room, I know your stories. You know, when I have the opportunity to preach on a Sunday morning and I look out across the crowd of people, I don't just see people. I see stories. I see life. I see hardships. I see folks that have been diagnosed with cancer. And I see folks that have, have situations in their life that they're not sure how to, to handle. I see family problems. I see difficulties. I see death that a family has walked through. I see the sorrows, and I see the joys, and I see the triumphs. And the Holy Spirit's the thing that reminds us that no matter what life throws at us, we can find joy in the Lord. And the Holy Spirit's, our, in a sense, our superpower. There's a millennial quote for you right there. The Holy Spirit acts as that, that, that thing that has gifted us. You know, that is a promise of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11 tells us that. That each of us, when we come into Christ, when we are given that Holy Spirit, that he's given us a unique gift. And that our gift is important. Your gift is important. You are not just a number in this place. You have a certain gift, a certain ability, that it can be used for the kingdom of God. You can help others come to know the love that you, you, you have. And I believe that's a supernatural power that God has given you through the Holy Spirit. And finally, the Holy Spirit acts as our reminder, a reminder of our freedom. Listen to what Colossians 3 verse 17 says. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You're never going to feel alone any longer. You're never going to need to worry or stress because God has poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. And that's a guarantee of the promise. Listen to how Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says it. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, in a sense, the gift of redemption that we spoke about just a moment ago is two-part. Uh, redemption first started when Christ came for the first time, and he bought us back at a price. And then what, what do we know? We know that someday the eastern sky is going to split, and Christ is going to return for those whom he calls sons and daughters of the God most high. And that's the second portion of our redemption. It's when we come into our full inheritance. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit acts as a guarantee to that promise. It's a reminder to us that, well, that it's going to get better, that there are good days on the horizon. 
Elizabeth Keckley was a slave in Missouri just before the Civil War. And uh, Elizabeth uh, had hoped that someday she would be free. And so she went to her slave master and she said, Sir, can I please, will you give me the chance to buy back my freedom? The slave master said, sure, it cost you $1,200. And she wanted not only her freedom, but freedom for her son as well. So, you know, for us, we might think, oh, $1,200, that's really not that much money. We could come up with $1,200, but we're talking 200 years ago. $1,200 would have seemed like astronomical amounts of money to this gal. She began to, to seam dresses. She was a seamstress, and she, so she began to seam dresses on the side, trying to earn as much money back as she possibly could to try to pay off um, the slave owner. She, she went to him and she said, Sir, will you let me, will you let me take some time in, in New York City? Um, I can seam dresses there for, for a, a season, and I'll send back every paycheck I make. I'll send back every bit of money to you, and I'll pay back. And he said, No, you can't do it. You've got to stay here. You've got to earn that money here, and you've got to pay me back. Well, some of her wealthy clients that she had seen dresses for began to hear her story, and they recognized this isn't right. Slavery shouldn't be. And so those wealthy clients pooled together their resources, these gals that she had seen dresses for for years, and they gifted her $1,200 to buy her freedom and her son's freedom. You see, freedom costs something, but at the same time, freedom's a gift. For us in Christ, it's a gift that exchanges our debt and it redeems us. A gift that adopts us as sons and daughters of God. And a gift that leaves us a guarantee. It leaves us a promise. The Holy Spirit living in us. So Paul concludes this portion of the letter saying this in Galatians 4 verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but you're God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir an heir to the promise, the promise of the greatest gift that could ever be given, the gift of freedom. So what do we do with that? <laughs> We've heard that same truth. You know, I, as I studied out over the last few weeks and as I heard the, la- the first two messages of the series from Matt, I'm going, man, we're saying the same thing. <laughs> but I think we need to hear it. I think we need to be reminded of this truth time and time again. I love how Tom said it. <laughs> freedom, right? Because we are called to live free. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. And uh, my encouragement to you is I think some of you are living under oppression. I think some of you are sons and daughters of God who have yet to fully understand the freedom that you have. And so some of you, I think, just need to simply repent and say, God, I need to live free. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe you're doing that at your seat. Maybe you want to do it here at the steps. Maybe you want to talk to a minister and say, I need to be held accountable. I need encouragement under this. I need to live free. For some of you, you've never, you've never taken on that truth. You've never accepted the fact that, that Christ died for you. And you need to, for the very first time, say, freedom. And you need to give your life over to the Lord and baptistry. And you need to come up from the grave, wash clean, living Whatever decision you have, there are going to be ministers around the room. I'll be over here by the baptistry. Luke will be in the back of the room as well as Tom. If you have a decision of faith to make, we want to help you make it this morning. Let's sing this song together.